Good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. Turn with me over to the book of <clears throat> Acts. Book of Acts. We're going to look at chapter 9. Um, we're going to look a little bit, just, just a thumbnail sketch of the life of Saul, who became Paul, who was arguably the most effective minister who has ever breathed. The title is Four Roads, One Path. Four Roads, One Path. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Three, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Six, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Then the men, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, verse 9. And he was three days there without sight. He neither ate nor drank now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man, named, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Verse 12. And he is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias, coming in and lay his hands on him come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is as the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, verse 17, and entered the house. The Lord help us as we study. I'm convinced that through Saul's life, we can find some, some clues as to how God purposes our destiny how he guides us to the right places, the right people, through difficult circumstances that he might show his glory in delivering us from things so that we can understand what tomorrow would look like from today. Saul was an interesting human being. He didn't just appear here. We see him in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is preaching the gospel with great effectiveness. Stephen happened to be appointed by the disciples, the apostles now, as a person who would go out and help with the administration of delivering 
resources to those widows from the Hellenistic world who were Jewish and came to Jerusalem, got saved, and stayed a part of the church, how they could get their, 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 war, their portions, their rations. Stephen was one of those the apostles had placed in charge of that, delivering food and resources to these widows. As he did so, he saw some that were infirmed, and he would pray for them, they get healed. Amazing. It captured the attention of so many people that Stephen began to, to minister the gospel publicly, preaching publicly. That made the Jews, who were not happy about the, the disciples and the person of Jesus who had been raised from the dead, made them very angry, and they began to persecute Stephen. Well, you couldn't persecute, you couldn't form, a, a, if you will, a lynch mob on your own. You had to have the authorities put their stamp of approval on your actions. And the only authority who was there was Saul. And it says that those who began to persecute Stephen, indeed stone him, took off their cloaks and laid their cloaks at, Saul, at, at Saul's feet. That meant, Saul, we are giving you our, our witness that we believe this is right and you are giving your stamp of approval that we can do this. And indeed they did. And Stephen died. But Saul was there watching as Stephen breathed his last. And it had to be an indelible impression on Saul's mind. Had to be. Because Stephen didn't just die. He preached as he died. The pain of seeing four-pound boulders being thrown on your head and your body and your body being crushed. Somehow or another, he was able to speak. And these were his last words. It says that he saw... Jesus standing while he was speaking. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you because the Bible is full of references to who Jesus is and full of a lot of miracles. But Jesus at this time had already died and was going to, had gone to heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what it says. He had done his work. He was settled. But it says that Stephen saw him standing. Do something that makes Jesus get up. I mean, why, why do you stand? When you go to a football game, basketball game, when you stood for, Steve, for, for Pastor Kevin, it was to honor, it was to recognize something great had been done. Jesus was seated, seated but he stood up. He said, oh, Stephen, that's impressive right there. Oh, Lord, I want to do something that makes you stand. But the words that Stephen spoke were even more impacting. That was a personal witness for Stephen that Jesus was watching and was identifying with what Stephen went, did, did, did. Now, Stephen was now still speaking as people were killing him. And he said, Lord, do not hold this against them. Now, that's very different than most of the Old Testament saints in what they would say with respect to people that were hurting them. You can find so many psalms that are imprecatory in their, their orientation. Imprecatory means judgmental psalms, meaning, oh, God, you see my enemy, get them. Get them, God. You know they're coming after me. The pit that they have dug for me to fall into, let them fall into it. Hard to find anybody who's saying, Lord, forgive them. Now, it's not that those imprecatory prayers are wrong. They're just not highest. 
And we're always trying to figure out how can we bring a smile to the face of God rather than just trying to comply. Are you listening to me? So we see Zechariah, one of the prophets of God in the Old Testament. He was a son of a priest called uh, Jehoiada who had led a, a, a king named Joash through doing right. And as he was doing right, it was all Jehoiada that was helping him. Because when Jehoiada died, Joash turned. And he turned not only away from the Lord, but he turned on his own boy, meaning Jehoiada's boy, who was Zedekiah. Zedekiah came in prophesying, saying, Joash, you're not doing right. Repent. Joash got mad at Zedekiah, killed him in the, the, the temple, executed him in the temple. And Zedekiah said this, Lord, you see him? Get him. Don't let their heads go down to the grave in peace. That was kind of the sentiment. Not mad at Zedekiah. Not mad at all. It wasn't wrong to say that. Just not highest. We see revelation growing about how we ought to treat our enemies. It grows from the old to the new. And it doesn't mean that the old was wrong. It just means God wants us to increase in our understanding of what it means to be like him. And that all of us were at one time enemies and the only reason we got to where we are now is because he didn't get us mercy was extended to us and so Jesus comes out saying you have heard it said there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to be mad at your enemies there's no requirement for that can you get them but there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to. And Jesus comes and says, you've heard it said. And, 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 and the phrase, you've heard it said, says a lot about what people were teaching that may not have been written. So everybody prescribed that, were, that was a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe, a teacher of the law, they said, I, I adhere to the Torah and all of the Old Testament. But they would say things that weren't written. Now, I say things that aren't written, but I try to keep it in the spirit in which they were written. Are you listening? These people weren't keeping it in the spirit in which it was written. So Jesus said, you've heard it said. Love your friends and your neighbors, but hate your enemies. That was never written, but it was said. Interpreted because God said, love your neighbor. And they interpreted that if God said, love your neighbor, but didn't mention your enemy, that it was okay to hate your enemy. Jesus said, you've heard it said, I tell you, love your enemy. <sighs> what? You want us to love Rome? Do you know what they did to my cousin Mookie? <laughs> do you know what, do you know how they cheat me and take my money? They foreclosed on my mama's house. And it wasn't righteous. Do you know? You want me to love them? Love your enemy and pray for them. Be like your father in heaven. <laughs> the difference between the Old Testament and the New is that people are becoming more like God. The revelation is growing. The understanding of who he is and what he wants us to be like and what he wants us to do increases. There was Stephen dying, and Saul was watching, and he had been probably one of those ones who had said something like what Jesus said, you've heard it said. But he heard this man 
say something he's never heard before. Don't hold it against him, Lord. Much like what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Branded in his soul. I'm convinced. Don't have proof, but I'm convinced. And now he's gone on his own to get letters from the chief priests in order that when he goes to Damascus, if he finds some people in Damascus, he can bring them, who, who are part of the way, which was now what we call Christians, part of the way he can bring them back to Jerusalem, bound that they might be tried and convicted. And as he's on his way, he sees something and hears something. A light. We don't know if he was on a horse or whether he was walking, but whatever he was doing, he wasn't doing anymore. He was on his face. A light appears, and he hears this voice. The other people heard the voice, but they didn't understand everything that was going on. And this light blinded Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Where did he get that? Now, he may not have known the identity of the voice, but to call him Lord was not just a term of respect because this was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. You don't use that term except for he who is God. And so he wasn't saying, I don't understand that who is speaking to me. He says, I understand that you are God, but I don't know who you are. I need, I need some identification. Because there's no question that you are God, but I don't know you like this. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. <sighs> Messed him up. Messed him up. Though his eyes were open, he could not see. Those words, again, confirmed everything that he went through with Stephen. And those who were with him led him into Damascus because he was blind. And he went to a house in, in, in Damascus and, and there he stayed for three days on a street called Straight. Everything about Saul's life had been leading to this point. His training as a Pharisee. He was brought up in the school of Gamaliel. The school of Gamaliel was the most intellectual Jewish school, the most high, high, highly accredited Jewish institution in the world because Gamaliel was seen as the chief of all teachers. He wasn't just called rabbi, he was called rabban. And given the title Nasi, N-A-S-I, Nasi, which gave him not only religious hierarchy, but also gave him political influence. And he wrote some things that were extremely lenient with respect to women and non-Jews. Everybody respected this man. So respected was he that in Acts chapter 5, after the disciples have established their credibility as ministers in the city, and the church is growing, and the man at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3 has been, been raised from his sickbed, and he's dancing around after being a paralytic. Miracles are happening every place. The Jews have done all they possibly can to try to stop it. Acts chapter 4, they beat the disciples, and the disciples walk out happy that they were able to suffer for Christ. 
And then they come back to the same place from which they had been arrested and start preaching again in the temple. And more miracles and more signs. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. People, a giving revival begins to happen. Ananias and Sapphira happen. Not going to go into that. That's not a good thing. And that, that happens. But then after that, it says that miracles, more miracles were happening in the city. So much so that they bound the disciples again. And this time they threw them in jail. And it says that an angel of the Lord delivered them from the prison by opening the prison doors. <laughs> the interesting thing is this. They go back to the same spot where they got arrested. Because the angel said, keep preaching. Don't stop talking about who Jesus is. Now, all of this is a sign to the Jews that these men are either crazy or right. Because no thief, no criminal goes to city hall afterwards. If he's been arrested, he gets, he gets out of prison. And then he goes to city hall. Who does that? You run. You don't go to the place where somebody's going to arrest you again for the same thing. You don't put yourself in the, the, the way of the police when you've been not only convicted of a crime, but you've been in prison and now you've escaped. Who goes back to the place where you can be rearrested intentionally? These guys don't care, which means they love something more than their life. They've committed no real crime. They just love people and love God. They're about to, to really do some damage to him, the Jews are. And then Gamaliel steps up. And this, this, this passage, Acts 5 is an amazing chapter. It's a stunning chapter. And you read between the lines, you sit there and say, something's happening that we can't see in print. Gamaliel stands up and says, men, please listen to me. Shows how much influence he's got. Please listen to me. There was a man named Thaddeus, and he proposed to be something. And he died, and his followers scattered all over the place. There was another guy named Judas, and he proposed to be something, and he died. And his, his followers were scattered. He said, if you fight against this, you might be fighting against God. Do your best to understand that if this is nothing, it will scatter just like the other guys. But if it's something, you can't win. And it says they let him go. That's how much power Gamaliel had. But it also shows you what Gamaliel was thinking. Thaddeus and Judas died. Their followers scattered. These guys are raising the dead. Their leader died. Proposed to have rose again, which he did, which Gamaliel had not confessed yet, but I think he probably would later. Rose again, and these guys are staying together and they're growing. And Gamaliel, without saying what, he, what I believe he actually believes, is saying, you better stop. God going to get you. You're fighting against him. You won't win this fight because this is God. This was the Gamaliel under which Saul sat. The most respected teacher in all of Jerusalem. And he probably was there, not for a seminar, but he was probably delivered at the age of 13 or 14. And stayed there for a period of a decade. He understood the heart that Gamaliel had, which was different than the rest of the Pharisees. My point is, everything about Saul's life led up to this point. 
And I want you to understand, you may disconnect everything that you've been through that got you to hear it, but don't anymore. Please understand that God is trying to figure out your road that best leads you to him. Saul's road was a little bit different than all the disciples. They were all Jews, but they did not follow the same road, but they wound up in the same place. Your road is leading you to a purpose you don't even understand yet. And what you need to do is connect the dots, if you can, redemptively, and realize, oh, that's why God had me here. He had me with this parents for this reason. Oh, I realize they didn't have everything right. They didn't do everything right. But that's why he had me here. So I now can have a perspective that others might not have and help people who have been through the same kind of stuff I've got. You've got to have a perspective that is redemptive about your past. Even Paul's, which would be one that was, that was laden with threats and murder against the church. He was able to say, that God took all of that junk and used it so that he could use me as a picture of what it means to be the worst and still receive grace. The whole history of your life, the path upon which Saul was on and yours are leading you to his purposes. You got to look at it like that. Your abuse, yes. Your failures, yes. The evil people have done to you, yes, because God's bigger than all of it. And he will use you to help people who have been through similar. But he won't use you alone. So he takes Saul, who's had this wonderful revelation, and he says, I'm going to put you in this man's house, and you're going to be here blind for three days. But I'm going to give you a vision. Of this guy who's going to come and help you. Now, could God have just opened Saul's eyes and got him on his path of preaching the gospel all by himself? Sure. He can do that. But he chose not to. He chose to leave him vulnerable, helpless, and alone. Oh, he had other people around him, but alone in his experience. And he said, but there's one guy I'm going to send to you. Now, it said it took, he, he was there three days. I think it was a three-day period because it took that long for Ananias to be convinced that this was a good idea. God came to Ananias and said, hey, there's this fellow I want you to go see. Uh, and what Ananias says is so funny. Uh, Lord, do you know? <laughs> I just, just ask him the question. Maybe you've missed out. Maybe you haven't read the newspapers. But this guy, this guy hates us. He throws people like us and you want me to what? And then he tells Ananias, yeah, I've shown him a picture of you. I told him your identity and showed him who you Oh, now, Lord, really? You're going to do that to a brother? All I've done is been faithful. Why you do that to me? I think it took three days for Ananias myself. <laughs> Muster up the courage to go see this guy. And ultimately he went. And he said, Saul, I've been sent by God. And receive your sight. 
It wasn't three days of fasting. It wasn't, in the name of Almighty God. It wasn't the boisterous. It wasn't the theatrical. It wasn't the fantastic. It was just the authority. When you have authority, you don't have to be anything else. Nothing else. Nothing else. Just be the one who is sent with the authority. That's it. Receive your sight. Boom. Scales fall from Saul's eyes. He can see. And the first one he sees is Ananias. And he realizes he would not be free to see unless Ananias had come. And Ananias now becomes Paul's, Saul's discipler. Your road has to intersect with an Ananias. It has to. You need people to help you. You will never be able to see as well as you need to until somebody can come and help you. You may not be completely blind, but your vision will be impaired. Somebody else can help you to get to where you need to be faster. It says that Ananias stayed with him. And if you keep reading in Acts chapter 9, there was, there was fellowship and discipleship, Bible study, understanding who Jesus was in particular ways and in large ways in every way that Ananias knew. Ananias discipled this man. And once he discipled Saul, Saul, Saul was such a courageous human being. He went straight to the synagogues in Damascus and began to preach the gospel. And everybody was saying, wait a minute, wasn't this the guy who came here with orders to take people away? How in the world do we find him now defending the people he was trying to accuse? And many people came to the knowledge of the truth because of who he was. But Saul didn't have all the wisdom necessary in order to preach in such a way as to not cause other people issues. The people in Damascus were now trying to figure out how in the world could they deal with Saul in a, in a violent way, in a restrictive way, and it was spilling over to the rest of the church to such a degree that they had to get Saul out of the city at night by lowering him over the wall of the city in a basket. Not the most flattering way to leave. But this man was so passionate about truth, so passionate about getting this gospel, and so grateful that he had been spared knowing that he was the worst All he wanted to do is give people an opportunity, and if it meant his life, he did not care. But where did the man who became the greatest apostle in the history of the church, churches planted in places where nobody thought they should be planted, people reached that everybody thought should not be reached, us Gentiles, where did this guy get all of his foundational training except from Ananias? Ananias does not get enough up. It's kind of like uh, Moses. And uh, as God was calling Moses um, to go to the people of, of Israel and deliver them from, from Pharaoh and Egypt, um, he was a Jew. His wife was a Midianite from another tribe. Moses grew up Egyptian, though he was genetically Jewish. The Egyptians really didn't believe much in the idea of circumcision, at least not like the the Jewish people. And so Moses, having a Midianite wife, though the Midianites actually believed in circumcision because Midian was a son of Abraham. And so that, that thing came down, even though it wasn't Isaac, it came down to another son, that covenant idea. But neither one of Moses' sons were circumcised. 
he was on his way to Egypt <clears throat> and uh, says that God was about to kill him. Hmm. That's frightening. <laughs> and it says that his wife, Zipporah, circumcised her sons and told Moses, you made me do this. Now, you would like to think that their sons were little boys, babies. They were grown men. I don't know how I can amplify to you <laughs> how angry Zipporah was that she had to do that and Moses wouldn't. So, who was the real deliverer for Israel? You get my point. Greatest apostle? Saul, yes. But who can we credit? God Almighty and a man named Ananias. You need an Ananias in your life to get to where you need to be. And if you don't, you won't get there as fast, nor will you be as great. Now, you'll be better than you ever have been on your own. Glad for that. But you won't be what you need to be because it builds character. It builds relationship. It does everything that's important scripturally to making you better. I've got so many Ananiases in my life. So many, and they still are there. Saul's wrote, Ananias's wrote, and then their wrote. Their wrote combined to do something in Damascus which had never been done. Increase the size of the church. Allow for more disciples to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's something about the combination of you and somebody else that will produce more than you ever could individually. Find your Ananias so you can have your road together. There ought to be a their road. Pastor Jim Critcher and I, for 20 years, actually 20 years here, 27 otherwise, our road together. Pastor Jim LaFoon, <clears throat> 28 years. Pastor Steve Merle, 40 years. Daryl Green, 39 years. Our road. What does it look like? Can you, can you point to anybody in your, in your, your spiritual life that you can say, I've joined with and am now participating on that road. Four roads, one path. It's God's way of leading you where you ought to be. And then lastly, we have God's road for Saul. Though we don't hear much about Ananias anymore, the foundation was laid, and this man bucked all church tradition in order to bring truth to bear. The Jewish people were working really hard to try to preserve all of their, their sense of identity as Jewish people and weren't thinking about trying to incorporate folks like us who have no Jewish lineage. Gentiles were on the out looking in until Peter had a revelation in Acts, <clears throat> excuse me, Acts chapter 10. And that revelation was beautiful, but it didn't change the strategy of the church. All it did for him was just say, okay, they're allowed. Gentiles are now allowed to come into the church. But they never had an outreach from Jerusalem. It wasn't until Saul got his information 
about what Gentiles ought to be, equal to, Gentile, equal to Jews in terms of their reception of truth and the redemptive benefit that flows from the cross, it wasn't until that that we became as primary as the Jews. As a result, this man, along with Barnabas, who we talked about last week, became the greatest progenitors of the church around the world that was not primarily Jewish. And they did, they did such a good job that we today are surprised when we hear of a Jewish congregation. That's how great of a job they did. God's path not only led him to plant more churches in the Gentile world than any other apostle, but he wrote two-thirds of what we call the New Testament and helped us understand how we ought to be good Christians, what it means to be a good church member, what it means to be a good wife, a good husband, a good son, a good daughter, a good friend, how we apply all the benefits of the cross to our lives so that we can be more like him. What does good conduct look like? What does it mean to be an excellent witness? How do we deal with conflict resolution? He, he, he addressed every issue so that we are not in the dark. And we've got holy writ to be able to say, no, that is not the best way to do it. This is because we have chapter and verse. Two-thirds of the New Testament this man wrote. The greatest, most productive human being, this side of the cross, none have been better. And I'm begging you, figure out a way to, to, to allow the greatness that is on the inside of you that should not should not be compared with anybody else. I'm not trying to figure out how in the world I can be Paul. By the way, Saul's name was changed to Paul. I'm not trying. That ship has sailed. That life has been lived. But I do not want to fall short of anything that God thought about when God thought about making bread. Whatever he thought about, when he thought about making you, don't miss that mark. I beg you, press. Do what is necessary in order to, to see the imprint of God and the calling and purpose for which you've been placed on the planet fulfilled in its fullness. Not just a little bit, not just a little bit better than what you used to be. All the way until you can hear, well done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us as we understand the path you've placed us on. Give us a sense of hunger. Lord, we ought to be content every day. Contentment is a gift that allows us to understand something about what you have already done and, and, and what you've wrought in us, and for that we are grateful. But we should rarely ever be satisfied because there's always more you want to do. So I pray that the dissatisfaction would rise in people's souls so that they are not, not sedentary with their life and choose to serve and give and love better so that you can be glorified.